The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome, Welcome. to Data Welcome. Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Thanks for tuning in this week to another episode of Data Gurus. My conversation with Steve August in this episode was quite refreshing. You know, if you're a founder or a CEO of a company that's looking to scale their business, this episode really gives you some good tips and advice, refreshers, things that we all know, but instead of having to go to a workshop or going to a long class, it's just a general reminder of how to really think about your business and some easy reminders and tips of what we need to consider as you think about the next steps in your business. Take a listen. Welcome back to another episode of Data Gurus. Today, I have Steve August, who's joining me, and he is the founder and CEO of Steve August Coaching. Welcome, Steve. Great to be here, Seema. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. So, just the name of your company sounds so interesting, the word coaching. Tell us a little bit more about what you actually do these days. Yeah, so my work is with uh, business founders and owners, especially in the market research space, since that was where my journey took me and where I've spent you know, over 15 years, in helping them transform so they can scale their companies to like beyond what they think. And that to me is the most rewarding work. And the, as I've had my own business journey as a founder and entrepreneur and have worked with my clients over the years, I see more and more clearly that for a company to make the next great leap to really gain its true potential, often it's a transformation that needs to start with the founder. And so we work a lot on that and understanding what's going on both in the business and kind of metaphysical life of the founder. And then we then break that down and identify what needs to stay the same, what needs to change, and then find a path to, to roll that out and hugely impact you know, the company and whatever industry they're in. And your journey has brought you here. Just for listeners, give us a little bit of background to what your journey was or has been up to this point. Yeah, sure. So my journey as a startup founder uh, with a couple of exits, as of a, one of an accidental entrepreneur, I got into the market research business, as a lot of people do, by almost accident. My wife was the real researcher in the family, and I had had a very diverse career, might be a diplomatic way of saying it, up until uh, the time our child was born. Other, I always joke, I had career attention deficit disorder. And, but it was always something with technology and creativity, creative application of technology. And so my wife was the researcher. She had worked at for Fitch Design, which was sort of the prototype for IDEO back in the 90s, the, where design research really started to take hold. And she was a design researcher. And so consequently did a lot of in-depth, in-home research, ethnographies and the like. And when our kid was born in 2002, I was working at a different job. It was in museum exhibit development. It was really cool. It took a lot of hours and it didn't pay a lot. <laughs> so we made my wife's business, Kimberly's business, the family business. 
And I was started out as the marketing guy and the tech guy, rebranded it to KDA Research, and uh, I started supporting her doing videos and things like that. But I also saw that she was going to people's homes, and before she would do that, she would want to have a sense of what was going on while she wasn't there, and she would go to the Kinkos back in the day, so I can, can date how, how far back this is, and would put together this elaborate paper diary, and then ship it out FedEx, and then show up, and maybe the diary was filled out, maybe it wasn't, but it was a lot of work. And it was right around the time blogs were appearing on the landscape, and I said, well, maybe there's an easier way to do this. You know, Web diaries, paper diaries, maybe we can make this easier for ourselves. And we started playing with that, and it really worked. And we realized not only were we getting the, the diary portion sort of figured out, we had sort of stumbled onto something that was a, a bit of a shift. Yeah, because up until that time, you know, online qualitative research was basically all about just putting, replicating focus groups in an online space. So you, online, you know, you take your facility and you make a bulletin board out of it, basically. And that's not what we wanted. We wanted to take advantage of that opportunity to, to like access people's experiences. So we had a very ethnographic view of it. And so we started playing with that with off-the-shelf blogging software. And then we started speaking about it at conferences. And then people started coming up to us and saying, that's super cool. Can we use it? And I thought you could use it, but you really wouldn't want to because it really, you had to be pretty technical. You had no HTML. It was a, you couldn't get a transcript out of it or anything. But I said, well, maybe we could build something. And that started the journey. That question of maybe we could. And so we did, we put in our own money. Then we took out a, a small business loan. Then we got some friends and family. And then we built the first version in 2007. And it was really exciting at the time. And even it's the same year that the iPhone came out and the Wii came out and the Kindle came out. It was like a 2007 was a, a great year for tech. And so we had built a great product, but I didn't know the first thing about building a great business. So that first time founder journey is one of, of coming into awareness of like what your strengths and challenges are as a leader, as somebody who's a business person, where your role fits. And because at the beginning, you, you just have all this input from what you read and you assume it's going to be like that. And it usually isn't exactly like that, <laughs> like what you read. There's all these twists and turns and there's, you know, being really good at creating a product or understanding research is not the same as being really good at scaling a company. They're two entirely different skill sets. And so, but we rode that up through fits and starts that pulled the, you know, pulled into the ditch a few times, pulled it back out of the ditch a few times. And in 2014, we were, we were very uh, blessed to get an exit. We were acquired by Focus Vision, who was looking for a platform that they could add to their portfolio. And, and we were looking for more resources, more salespeople, more of a global footprint since we were serving people all over the world. And it was just a really good match. And so then did a earnout year with Focus Vision and then Focus Vision bought a bunch of other companies, including Decipher and the private equity company that owned Focus Vision then packaged everything up and sold it again or sold it to the current equity company that owns it. And I had options and I'd rolled over some money and lo and behold, it all came together. So I got to live through my first exit as the founder and the second exit as part of the management team. How exciting. And I'm sure there were so many, like, as you look back, there were so many lessons that you had along the way that you probably could speak to with your current clients in your coaching practice. Absolutely. There's so many lessons on every phase of the journey. Like when you're in early stage, there's things you, you know, you don't know and things you do know and knowing which ones are important at that given time. At the growth stage, you know, how do you go from, okay, we, we've got product market fit to, okay, now we have to pour some gasoline on this and grow this thing. 
to, okay, when is it time to like take the exit or even talk about it and understand what the opportunity is. And then even that process of and going through multiple exits and also being part of a team that was acquiring companies as well, sort of understanding all the levers that are pulled and pushed during that negotiation process and the whole, how it all works in the exit strategy. There's just so many lessons that you accumulate and you don't even realize it. And that's how I got into coaching is that after I left Focus Vision in 2017, I had people come up to me and start saying, hey, I got this thing going on in my business. I really, you know, Steve, you've been through this. I'd be really interested to get your perspective. And I found that I had some th- learned some things along the way that proved valuable. Yeah. And also that I really enjoyed it. And that I also felt like this is a place where I can contribute. And so I have continued to develop those, both the skills and the, you know, the soft skills and the hard skills when it comes to helping people transform and scale their businesses. That's fantastic. And what do you think is some of the, you know, as you've kind of built the practice and have worked with other founders, you know, what are some of the key themes that you see when working with clients? And I know not everybody is one size fits all, but I'm sure you've weaved together some common themes that you've come across. So the one that pops to mind right away is this idea that we all have sort of core stories in our heads that we've picked up along the way. And sometimes those stories are, you know, ones of maybe we're not worthy enough, maybe we're imposters, maybe there's scarcity in the world, maybe all these different things, all these things that we picked up along the way that were, that helped us and were protective of us at some point. And when you put it in and you, the mix, when you're leading a company can actually like that's driving the bus, your core story, it's driving your bus and you're driving the company as the founder. So your core story ends up driving what happens in the company. And so a big part of of what our my work with entrepreneurs is like okay let's figure out what's driving you and what's real and what's not real in your story and then we can then see clearly about what's going on and then we take then it becomes this exercise of okay and now we have to execute you know we have a path we see you have to have all the the fundamentals the vision the right team the right processes and you know execute and so it's but you can't really do that unless you've got clarity on yourself and so what I look at at this whole entrepreneur game now as actually a platform for personal development more than anything, because if you've ever led a company, if you've ever started something, you know that there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. And within that uncertainty is the opportunity for doubts and fears and all that. And when those happen, your core story fires up and, says, and tries to create like the meaning around it or tell you why things are happening. And it can be draining and emotional, and, but it's a real service because in surfacing these triggers, you can become aware of them and then understand how to work with them. And that actually moves you forward on your own path of personal transformation. And so whatever happens at the entrepreneurial level, good, bad, or ugly, you're winning at the personal development and transformation level. Yeah, it surpasses kind of the whole company and growth and everything else, but it really comes down. You also gain probably over many years, a deeper understanding of who you are as a person. Exactly. And when you have that as your core, then amazing things happen. So would you say that, you know, most entrepreneurs have a crazy story or some sort of unique quality that allows them to be entrepreneurs? My take is this, that entrepreneurs get a bug or an idea that so captures them and so drives them that they're willing to take on or driven to take on 
making a company around it and bringing it out to the world. And they're willing to take on all the uncertainty of, because I don't think of entrepreneurs as risk takers. I think they're so driven by a vision or a mission that they're willing to take on vast amounts of uncertainty to make it reality. And as they're doing that, they're frantically trying to reduce risk all the time, right? It's just that we stepped into something that's just fields of uncertainty. Do we have a product the market wants? Do we know which, you know, is it enough of the market? Is it enough of a product? You know, are we hiring the right people? Are we the person, you know, the right person to lead? Are we, you know, do we need to get funding? We have to persuade other people. There's, there's so much, you know, compared to a job that you take, where all this stuff has pretty much been figured out and it's about operating and growing, being an entrepreneur or a founder is all is stepping into the uncertainty, uh, stepping off the cliff and building the airplane as you're <laughs> falling to the ground. Well, and I also think, you know, there's a bit of a characteristic of self-reliance saying, you know, you might not know the actual path, but you feel so passionate about your idea that you're going to figure it out. And with that comes all the lessons along the way. Absolutely. And it's also that there's, there's this wonderful optimism that entrepreneurs have. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times the optimism is almost entirely unwarranted. <laughs> I completely agree with that. But you almost have to live in that optimism. You do, right? Right. Otherwise you're paralyzed. Right. You'd never start. And all these amazing things would never have happened. Correct. Because if you really knew what it took to get to where you were, you probably would be like, I'm going to just get a job. <laughs> It is so true. Like, I don't think you actually really, 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 really know until you're in it. And you're like, man, I could have never imagined this. But that's also the magic of it is because you can never imagine yourself how much transformation you're going to go through until you put yourself in that position, right? And that optimism gets you there. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I guess, you know, when people do seek help or coaching, They've already come to a realization that, hey, there's some work to do here and that there is a strong connection between myself and the organization, which needs to be you know, thought through to be able to get to the next phase. Yeah, it comes through a variety of different things, ways that people wake up and say, you know, I could really use another set of eyes on this or a space that I could have, because it's also a really lonely journey. And as you get down further of the journey, as you, you know, let's say, you know, when you start off and it's just two or three people in a room, it's like this real sense of camaraderie. Everybody's on the same level. Everybody's pulling the same oar. People can just think out loud and understand each other. And as things grow, especially if you get into 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 employees, now you've got layers, right? And as the founder, it actually conversely gets lonelier because there's fewer people that you can actually say what's really going on for you as the founder than when it was smaller compared to how many people around. So there's certain things you just can't go public to with your staff. There's certain things you can't tell your investors. There's certain things that your family, you feel like you can't burden them any. Right. They're already living through, not the nightmare, but through the journey. Yeah. And it's, it can be very stressful because there's, there is so much uncertainty and that's part of why coaching is so, I believe in it so much and is that it creates, it gives founders a space where they can just talk about what's going on for them at that moment in a way where there's no agenda other than their own success and it's fully supportive and they don't have to worry about, you know, looking a certain way to anybody. And that is just really valuable to have that space to work things through because you are on show so often as a founder and an entrepreneurial leader. Do you find many leaders, and I don't want to say that you've worked with, let's say that you've kind of know 
suffer from an imposter syndrome? Many do. It comes and goes, especially in the earlier stages. When, and conversely, it's weird. It's sometimes when really good things happen is when the imposter syndrome kind of kicks in. Like they're thinking, oh, man, they're going to find out that I'm actually. But then after a while, they start to like settle in and say, oh, that was just me, a little self-deception. It's almost like when we succeed, sometimes we have to let go of our old selves, our perception of our limitations. I had a coach once that said, his name was Rich Lutvin, and he said, one of the things he says is like, we fight really hard for our limitations because we're comfortable in that space, right? As long as we're in that box that we've created for ourselves, we can long be outside the box, but we're kind of comfortable because we know this box. And I think part of the imposter complex is, you know, being actually pulled out of the box by your own efforts and your success. And then you have to realize there's another box or no box at all. And sometimes it takes people a little while to let go. of. Yeah. It's almost like you're out of your comfort zone because you've done something amazing. Exactly. Right. (laughs) It's really disorienting. Yeah, I totally agree. So talk to me. I'm sure you work with companies or people seek advice in terms of, you know, exits and, and potentially thinking about selling companies. You know, I certainly work with founders and executive teams that say, I'm thinking about it and, you know, not 100% sure. What's your advice to people when they're starting to think about an exit? Yeah, it's a great question. I recently actually just wrote up a, a little white paper, a thought piece called Five Thoughts, Crucial Thoughts on Exits. And one of the first thought was, either be for sale or don't be for sale. And the reason I say that is because, you know, people get approached by another company or, and they'll say, oh, you know, are you thinking about, you know, would you be interested or would you want to talk about it? And the thing is, if you're going to do this, if you're going to be for sale, you want to do it right. You want to run a process. You don't want to have a single buyer. You don't want to have just one interested party who you're talking to. You want to get your house in order. You want to research the market. You want to figure out who are the people who are most likely to get the most value out of you? And you want to do the whole process, run a roadshow, take proposals, get to the LOI, and then run it through like that. If you're not really ready to do that, don't do it. <laughs> don't even like, because it's literally one of the most distracting things you can do as an entrepreneur is to take on an acquisition process. And so like I tell people, it's just like, if you're not really ready to do this, if you're not really ready to engage in the process, then say, hey, you know, really flattered. but we're focused on growing our company. Why don't we check in in six months? You know, see, keep the door open, but you don't get dragged into this kind of like, okay, well, I guess we should talk. And you really want to know that's what you want to do. And you can be opportunistic. I mean, that initial conversation could be the thing that sets off you really getting serious about that process. That's how it happened for me at Revelation. But, But to me, that's important because there's so many nuances and levers to pull in the acquisition process that you really want to, you know, do the best, run your best possible process with somebody who can really, who's been there, has experience and can lead you through it. And it's emotional and it's exhausting, right? The ups and downs of the whole process. So you definitely need a, it's a team sport. Oh yeah. It's a team blood sport. It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in certain negotiations, it's, it feels like that. Yes. And you know, you're arguing it's this much and these things are valuable. And the person on the other table would say, well, we don't see it that way. Right. And we don't see that value or we see these value under this conditions, which in those conditions are like a 20 year now or something like that. Right. Like, <laughs> that's not going to work. Right. So it is emotional. It is distracting. It takes your eye off the ball. I think inevitably people who are in equi- companies and acquisition processes tend to miss numbers because they're just 
you know, it's hard to keep all this in your head. People get distracted. That's so true. And I also think that, you know, when you're in the mode for being up for sale, hitting those numbers are crucial because obviously it gives leverage to potential acquirer if you don't hit those numbers. Mm -hmm. And so getting support is also helpful. What other advice do you have? You said there's a few thoughts. One is, you know, we talked about it. Be for sale or don't be for sale. What other advice would you give? Well, I talked about running the process. And one of the things that I tell people, because they're always like, okay, what is it going to be worth? You know, I'm hearing this much or this much. Yes. And I say, well, you know, you're worth pretty much what the market says you're worth and what leverage you have. Like those are the things that ultimately determine your worth. And whatever you read in Inc. or Fast Company or MR Web or whatever multiple somebody else got, it's nice. You can point to it. But if you don't have leverage, if you only have a single interested party, if you've missed your numbers, if there's something funky in your finances that they can you know, use to hammer you down, if it's a purely financial buyer versus a strategic buyer, it all comes down to leverage and what the market says you're worth. And so I always caution people to like take what they see out in the world as a grain of salt or you know, as a guideline, but ultimately it'll come down to your particular situation. And that's why I always advise, like, find somebody who knows this process because you might have points of leverage you don't even realize. My favorite story, if this isn't from, from the market research space, but it illustrates it perfectly, is there's, you remember the old, the Duraflame logs, you know, the paper logs? Yeah. They're a fine company, you know, at some kind of nice revenue level, and they decided it was time to sell. And so they were going through some financial buyers and they were getting some okay deals, but it didn't feel right. So they started to really think more strategically about their assets, what they really had. And it turns out one of the most valuable things Doraflame has every year, like clock in the winter, is big end cap space in retail stores and grocery and like the Home Depots and stuff like that. So they thought, okay, well, who has summer, right? And who would want this, that space year round? those contracts. And it turned out that Kingsford Briquette, which was owned by Clorox, had summer, right? And so they ended up selling to Clorox for a much higher multiple. So it wasn't the finances. I mean, they had to be good. It wasn't even necessarily the product that was the whole value, of course, but it was actually the shelf space that they owned as well and the time of year that they had it. Then now Clorox has it all year round. And that was something that was valuable to Clorox and therefore they paid a higher premium for it. That's a great story. I love that. It's a great example. Yeah. So that's when I talk to people about leverage, it's sort of like, yes, we need to understand what your leverage and who you would have it for. And leverage also just me is also part of the context of like who's buying. And so that's why running that process and being really thoughtful about, you know, who would most value you is really important. So Steve, you blog a lot about, you know, taking some time to Think about the business. You have a series blog post. I think it's Meditation for the Entrepreneur. I don't know the specific title, but you write a lot about time and kind of taking a step back as you think about the business. Talk to us a little bit more about the importance of that. Yeah. So when I was in it and really in it, it felt like there was no time to take time. Like everything was reactionary. Everything was putting out a fire. Everything was really hard to get away from constant input and get to a point where you could see, put three thoughts together and see things clearly. Like in order to get perspective on your own situation, you have to get a little bit outside of your own situation. And so whether that's taking, you know, going offline for part of the day at night or over the weekend, or taking time to meditate or getting away, I've started running digital detox retreats where we go out for four days into nature 
everybody brings a challenge that, that we're going to process, but we get away from day-to-day thinking. We get away from day-to-day perspective and we go out and we go into amazing spaces of nature that are just change your brainwaves, literally change your brainwaves and change the way you think and make you more receptive and open to thinking things differently. And then we, it's sort of a shock and awe program within two days you know, you're in activities like one of them is whitewater rafting and it's really hard to worry about your marketing problem when you're on a class four rapid. <laughs> it's pure distraction. It's survival. It's pure presence. Like you're going to be present in that moment because that's true. your brain, your adrenaline's flowing. Some people can do it through meditation. Some people, yeah, I like to do it through like being in nature and raising the activity level. When that comes down, when you come down off that and you're in an, still in a, this natural space and I give people a time where they're almost not even permitted, but requested to do nothing, which is, when do we ever do that? When do we ever give ourselves permission to do nothing? And then we all work together with each other to process whatever challenges people are dealing with. But the perspective has been shifted. And suddenly the thinking is deeper, the problems are clearer, or the problems that felt so huge, suddenly you realize, okay, that part of it actually isn't the huge part. It's not actually a big problem. The big problem is actually, you know, a lot of times it comes down to our core story, which is making it a really big problem. Right. <laughs> and why don't we work on that for a little bit? So I just have these amazing transformations that happen. I did it, I led our first one in August. The next one is coming up and I call them Disconnect, Reconnect. It's coming up in April, in April 20th, 23rd, 2020. And this one's going to be in Arizona outside of Phoenix in Apache Junction. We got this amazing retreat in the, near the Superstition Mountains, which are really stunningly beautiful. We've got whitewater rafting on the Upper Salt River. We're going to have some amazing night hikes and stargazing as our, our natural activities. I already have some amazing people signed up, but just these things are transformative. That sounds amazing. How many people do you typically have at one of these Retreats. No more than seven. They're usually pretty intimate because we want everybody to get some depth uh, in, on their challenge processing. I love it. It sounds really good. Steve, if people wanted to learn more about what you're doing, where can they find you? The, the best places to find me are uh, steveaugustcoaching.com and LinkedIn. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. I love your stories and I love what you're doing. I think it's fantastic. Thank you, Seema. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in. Hopefully, this episode was illuminating for people who are currently CEOs or founders of companies that are looking to scale and some of the key things that really, really are important. And I think it's so hard for all of us to do, and that is to find time to take a step back and to really think about how you are going to grow the business how you're going to do some self-reflection as you understand your tie in terms of your personal story and how it could impact or play out and how you operate and grow a business. And, you know, the other key nugget I really think is important, especially as the landscape is changing and there's a lot of M&A activity going on, and that is to be conscious, to decide if you're going to be for sale or not be for sale. It's an important point because it is distracting. And when you're not prepared or you don't have a partner or a company that's going to help you actually run a process for you, it is incredibly distracting to the business. So hopefully you enjoyed the episode. Look forward to having you guys back next week. Thank you for tuning in to Data Gurus Podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. 
Head over to www.datagurusepodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.datagurusepodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.